0: The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin.
1: Often on social media or via email, people ask me what they can do to help with a certain cause. This has happened after a number of our episodes, including what I did with Oralasco and my wife, Shira, about raising a child with genetic diseases. It also followed a lobbying episode I did with Rabbi Yitz Frank. Those, by the way, are episodes 21 and 13, respectively. When people hear about a cause they care about, or they hear about something that reminds them of a cause they care about, they often want to know what they can do to help. Well, this week on the Jewish Living Podcast, we bring up another worthwhile cause to fight
0: for, Israel Advocacy, with my guest and fellow contributor to the Queen's Jewish Link. My name is Moshe Hill. I am a political analyst and columnist, and I'm here today to talk about NORPAC. Moshe and I will be discussing the upcoming NORPAC mission to Washington,
1: D.C., and what you can do to help out. Additionally, since I have him sitting here, I'll press Moshe on a few political issues directly related to today's Jewish community and his thoughts on the seemingly endless Democratic primary. Moshe, thank you so much for joining me
0: today. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Tell me a little about yourself, how you became politically active.
0: Well, I became politically active uh, probably around six or seven years ago. Um, I started getting into politics, didn't really think about it um, until then. So I think that what I always like to tell people, uh, you know, when I talk to people in high school or, or college, I say, you know what? I didn't get into this until I was in my late 20s. So I got, uh, I was just listening and learning and getting more involved and everything. And uh, around two years ago, I, uh, actually, NORPAC is the thing that got me politically active. I moved to West Hempstead. I started going to NORPAC, uh, which I heard about for years, but never uh, participated. In my second year at NORPAC, I met somebody on the trip that said he just met the congressional candidate for our district. So I volunteered for that campaign. I started writing for, for that campaign website. Then uh, my good friend Izzo over here uh, got me connected to the Queen Jewish link, started writing for them, uh, started writing for The Daily Wire, started writing for JNS, and uh, you know, just been going on since then. All right, so we're going to get into a little bit of
1: your other political leanings later on in the interview. Well, I want to focus the first part on this, on NORPAC. So first of all, what is NORPAC? What does it stand for? Because people don't know that it's an acronym. What does it stand for? <laughs> And what does NORPAC do?
0: So, NORPAC is the uh, Northern Jersey Political Action Committee. Um, It is, uh, basically, it is a pro-Israel advocacy group, where their big thing is their annual mission to Washington, where once a year, for one day, around 1,000 people from New York, New Jersey, and other areas uh, go down, take the days out of their work, take days out of their retirement, take days out of school, and uh, just go down to Washington, meet with 90 plus percent of Congress um, to talk about pro-Israel issues. Uh, They push bills, they push um, particular pieces of legislation, they push for support for the president's agenda, whoever the president might be, and it is a bipartisan uh, group. They meet with anyone who will meet with them and they will be happy to take a meeting with any member of Congress we just want to be able to talk about the things that matter to us. As American Jews, as Americans, we care about Israel. And uh, we are there as Americans, we are there as volunteers, and that's what we do once a year. So you said 90%. The other 10% are
1: those people that don't want to take meetings, or are those other reasons why they might not meet with them?
0: Sometimes they are people who just say, you know, we don't want to take a meeting. Sometimes people say, uh, we really can't, we don't have time. I'm um, not in charge of the meetings, They, but when I went to... Uh, the kickoff uh, meeting amongst NORPAC this year, they said a lot of the meetings, they just happen last minute. You know, the last couple of weeks, people are like, okay, let's get the meeting in because sometimes members of Congress, they you know don't look so far into their calendars. They don't really get the timing down. We try to get all the meetings set as much as possible. Sometimes you can't make it, but you know what? You get as many as you can.
1: All right. So you mentioned a couple of things that NORPAC kind of fights for in a general sense. So pro-Israel legislation, president's agenda. Can you get a little bit more specific with what you're pushing for when you go meet with these congressional representatives?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think one of the great things about NORPAC is that it really pushes some of the fundamental change that you see in Israel over the course of the past year. I mean, it's been going on for decades at this point. So I know that uh, one of the really great things that NORPAC is very proud of is that NORPAC helped push through the Iron Dome Support Act uh, in 2013, which guaranteed U.S. funds to help Israel build the anti-missile system, everyone knows about Iron Dome now. But back in 2012, 2011, it wasn't really a thing that anyone knew about. And I'm, when I'm saying anybody, I'm not talking about the public. I'm talking about members of Congress. Nobody knew about it, and it was brought up at a NORPAC kickoff meeting. One of the uh, NORPAC meetings that you have before the mission to Washington is people bring up legislation and say, "Okay, what bills are are what have been brought to the Senate floor?" who can bring those bills? What legislation are we trying to look? So somebody uh, brought it to the attention of the group and said, hey, I read about this thing in Israel, the Iron Dome, and I think we should really push for it. So they got it. They brought it um, to the Senate floor, to to the House, to the Senate, and it got passed and pushed and increased funding for every year. And I mean, I think we all know how many lives that, that that saves. That's a huge accomplishment from NORPAC. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot more. Oh, wow. (laughs) I could keep going. Absolutely. Um, And so in 2007, they said uh, we helped the Senate promote the very first U.S.-Israel Energy Cooperation Act. Um, And Israel is now more energy independent than it ever has been. I mean, it's just all part of these big things. Um, They pushed the uh, in 2012, 2013, they successfully promoted the United States-Israel Enhanced Security Cooperation Act the United States-Israel Strategic Partnership Act. I mean, this stuff, the list goes on and on. I mean, I know that I've gone uh, the last three years. Uh, This will be my fourth time there. And uh, I've spoken about, you know, just increased security, helping uh, combat BDS, helping uh, fight Hezbollah, helping fight Iran. You know, it's just, we push these bills. We try to get co-sponsors. We try to get people to, to vote for it and uh this is as americans we care about israel and we want to uh, see it prosper i
1: should have asked this at the beginning but how long has norpac
0: been going when did it first get started oh it around 23 24 years ago okay um yeah it's been going on for a long time this is why David Steinberg, who's the uh, guy who's in charge of a lot of things, Dr. Ben Choak is in charge, David Steinberg is in charge. Uh, when I spoke to him in advance of this, he's like, you want me to on the show? And I'm like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I can handle it. And he's like, okay, he's he trusted me to, to come onto the show. That was I appreciate mistake. It. it really was a mistake. <laughs> but this is why, because he knows he's been there since the very beginning and he knows all of that kind of thing. Um, so David, if you're listening, I hope you're he- <laughs> You're not embarrassed, <laughs> but yeah, it's been going on for over 20 years. It's really a great, uh, a great organization.
1: All right, so walk me through a day of the Pack mission.
0: Um, so I live in West Hempstead. So our day begins at 5 a.m. Uh, we meet in the uh, local shul to Davin. We get on the bus and we start driving. Uh, we get there uh, to DC around 11, 11:30, if we're lucky. Um, and there's usually a plenary session uh, somewhere in D.C. It's been uh, in the same place the last couple of years. But the um, they have a plenary session, which is basically a bunch of uh, pro-Israel members of Congress. They speak to the crowd. Everyone tries to go in, listen to members of Congress talk. Um, you usually listen to a couple speeches. You get lunch and then you're off to Capitol Hill. You go to uh, you get your list. Um, usually a, at least three days, uh, you get a list of the com- members of Congress that you're meeting with. Uh, sometimes it changes day of because it's so crazy down there. Um, and you meet with people. Uh, you um, you go to your meetings. There's always a group of maybe seven, eight people. You have a team, uh, a group leader. I was a group leader last two years. And uh, it's your job to basically get to your meetings on time and discuss uh, the talking points. So around a week before um, the mission, uh, Norpac sends around to all their group leaders, to everyone who's who signed up for the mission, um, the talking points uh, memo, uh, basically seven, eight pages worth of, of data and material of the um, bills that we're trying to push, let, the legislation we're trying to uh, get passed, And then you do some research. Uh, who is the person you're meeting with? Are they pro-Israel? Are they anti-Israel? Where, what's their voting record? You have to do all this stuff. Thank God for you know smartphones because I do the, a lot of this work on the ride down. It's a six-hour ride. I got to do something. Yep. So um, I do a lot of research on the way down uh, and we meet with them. I usually meet with three or four um, members of Congress. Um, A lot of times it's their aides because sometimes they're in, you know, they're voting and they're or they're in a session or or whatever, meet with their aides. But it's very funny. Some people are like, oh, you just met with the aides. The aides do a lot of the work. They make sure that the uh, stuff gets passed along. And, you know, members of, there's thousands of pieces of legislation and members of Congress do not know a lot of what's going on because honestly, nobody can know a lot of what's going on. You have so much legislation and the age of the ones that say, this is what you should put your, your, uh, your name on. And this what you shouldn't put your name on. And so it's a very important thing
1: where, where do members of NORPAC come from? Is it generally the Northeast or is it around the country?
0: Yeah. New York, New Jersey area. um, I think there are some that come from the Baltimore and Maryland area. I don't know how many fly in from other places around the country in the mission to Washington, but uh, it's mostly in the in this area, yeah. All
1: right, so mentioned a lot of the things that you talk about in Israel. Does NORPAC talk about anything domestically
0: when they're meeting with members of the Congress? Well, we talk about um, enhanced cooperation that we can have with Israel. I mean, it is a pro-Israel organization, okay. um, and so I think that one thing that was really big last year... Uh, because, um, unfortunately, Israel is becoming more of a partisan issue, um, which we are desperately trying to prevent. I think that it strives very hard to make sure that Israel remains a bipartisan issue. Um, and so one of the big things last year was to basically um, talk about the shared connection that uh, Israel and the United States have, um, shared values, shared history, shared um, Love of freedom, of democracy, of freedom of religion, um, freedom of speech. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, you may think that that's a pro Israel thing, but I think I look at that as an American thing as well. I think it's a good thing to remind everyone, whoever's talking, uh, that these are values that we all share.
1: And so, what are the conversation topics on the docket this year that NORPAC's going to be pushing?
0: So, it's uh, a little too soon to tell at this point. Usually um, the talking points come out. A week or two before, uh, and it's the uh, mission to Washington is in May this year. Um, so it's a little too soon to tell what's going on, but you know what? There's a lot of uh, a lot of things to think about. You know, with Iran, Hezbollah, um, with BDS. The BDS movement is is always uh, well, you know what happened in the UN yesterday. Um, well, on the day we're recording this. Right. Um, So what happened in the end a few weeks ago, the UN a few weeks ago, whatever. (laughs) Um, But no, the the UN put out a list of uh, like 120 businesses that do business in Judea and Samaria that the UN put on a blacklist and basically saying uh, you should boycott these companies. They're not saying boycott the companies, they're just saying these are the businesses. Right. To clarify,
1: it's not that they do business there, they operate out of there.
0: They operate, exactly. They operate out of there. Um, Coca-Cola
1: does business there, they don't. They're not on the list. Yes.
0: Um, There is actually a very interesting thing I saw um, that General Mills is one of the companies that operates out Hmm. of there. And, you know, I saw somebody say basically like, hey, members of Congress, if you promote BDS, um, General Mills is going to take a hit on this. And they have factories in your districts. And like, or they have, you know, like that's one example. But like. These aren't Israeli companies, a right. lot of them. A lot of them are international companies. General Mills is just an example, but like there's a lot of international companies that operate in Judea and Samaria because it's a, literally like it's the middle of a huge economic hub. I mean, Israel is one of the strongest economies in the world. And, you know, you have really great people over there. You want to build a successful brand in that part of the world. You do it in a place where it's safe and secure and and you know, a good place for your employees to to live. And I don't think companies should be punished for that. So and that could be on the docket this year, but you know we'll find out.
1: Well, that's one of the things about the BDS movement that I've seen—they don't really have an, a, an exact definition of who they're boycotting. They're, they're, a couple of years ago, they put things on Sabra things, which are no longer owned by even Jewish people anymore. It's owned yeah, by Pepsi. I know.
0: <laughs> so it doesn't seem like they're just saying, "Oh, this looks Israeli-ish." I know. Let's do. Let's, let's put something on that. I mean, listen—if they want to um, knock the uh, everything that came out of Israel, they will be. <laughs> They'll literally be signing their own death warrants because so many medical advances came out of Israel. So if you wanted to decide that, okay, I'm not going to take any medical advances that came out of Israel, hey, good luck to you. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. it's not going to work out. That was a
1: classic argument. Let me ask you a question. I mean, not that any of the other things that I've been talking about haven't been questions. Okay. But what's the difference between NORPAC and APAC? APAC's obviously much bigger. Yes. But what are some of the uh, the actual differences between the two organizations?
0: Well, I think APAC, um, the way they operate is very different. So I think APAC is more of a general, like, um, these are the things we're, we're pushing. We have this big conference every year. We invite people to come out to it. But it's more of like going, um, it's pro-Israel uh, from the group to the public and using, um, you know, or, or working with, members of Congress to accomplish that. Whereas NORPAC, we take the message directly to Congress. I think a lot of people don't even know what NORPAC does or, or know it exists, but it's like it's so many things that APAC promotes is because of NORPAC. I mean, NORPAC, I, I look at it as the, the spine of everything that is pro-Israel. I think everything begins, like you can't even move in, in the pro-Israel world without NORPAC doing all the hard work, you know? So I think that NORPAC goes to the um, members of Congress they put in the hard work and they and they see everybody i mean apac what do you have you have you know a bunch of uh members of congress presidential candidates that come and speak to the conference it's a wonderful thing it really is um but i think that when you have a thousand people come down from the new york new jersey area going to members of congress and they see that i think that members of congress see that people are taking time out of their lives to push for something that they believe in that speaks volumes to these to these members and because they know how hard it is
1: all right so you spoke about the different types of governmental officials that you're going to be meeting the different types of congressional uh, members or their aides mm-hmm. and you spoke about there's differences between pro-israel and anti-israel records so what's the difference between the way that you approach someone who has a record of being pro-israel versus uh, anti-israel in, it's incredibly different I mean no I obviously it's gonna be different I'm asking you what are those differences let me give, you, let me give you some
0: examples so I um I went to uh, one congressman uh this is my, my first year and he literally just came back from a trip to Israel he loves it he okay. just like went on vacation there he loves it and uh we literally didn't have to like talk about even the talking points I mean we did we mentioned them we said and he's like I think he was already I think with that year we had four a piece of legislation we were pushing he was already a co-sponsor on three of them and the moment i said to him uh you're not a co-sponsor on this he literally turned to his aide he's like get me on that And she's like already done and so (laughs) and that was done within the first three minutes of the conversation um so we just talked about israel and it was great And we talked about um where we've been where we and this was a group of like eight or nine people with the congressman and uh you know he told us where he went we told us we we said oh we've been there you know we traded stories just like you would if you anywhere else in the world you know if you went to any country and you met somebody who also went to that place like oh did you see this thing did you see that thing and we just talked about it and that was a great experience um and thankfully that's been a lot of my experience with there i mean the past three years i've spoken to a lot of pro-israel people um anyone who is quote-unquote anti-israel they don't outright say um you know i'm anti-israel they basically um they They like to use the Socratic method in a way of like questioning like, well, don't you think that the Israelis and the Palestinians, the Palestinians are, you know, they're having a real hard time too. And I think in that case, the best thing to do is um, you got to provide broad context. You know, I I wrote about this uh, actually a while back. I think that a lot what a lot of people don't hear is that, you know, the Palestinians have a lot of enemies and the Israelis are not on the top 20 on the list. I mean... They have a lot of people uh, within them that's keeping them down. I think that's not what the members of Congress hear. I think what they hear or what they see is um, you have the oppressed and the oppressor. And, uh, you know, like uh, Linda Sassour literally said this recently that uh, she said, when you have the oppressed and the oppressor, you have to side with the oppressed and you can't humanize the oppressor. And she's referring to Israelis. You can't humanize Israelis. Um, And... First of all, besides the fact that, you know, she's a ridiculous anti-Semite, um, the, (laughs) um, the idea that, you know, it could be viewed the, the, the entire conflict in that area can be viewed in such simplistic terms is quite foolish. And I think naive, and I don't think she's that foolish or naive. I think that she's trying to manipulate a narrative. And I think that a lot of people, members of Congress, um, you know, they're dealing with a lot of things. They're dealing with their own constituency. They're dealing with very broad domestic issues, very broad foreign issues. And Israel is, is you know, one of 30 things you're dealing with. And so maybe they just hear one side of the story. So it's our job as um, when you come here to assume that they're not anti-Israel. They just didn't hear all sides of the story. They're not fully nuanced in the entire thing. And that's part of what we have to do.
1: What happens when somebody says, what about the
0: Palestinian people? What's the response to that, well, what I would respond is, who are the biggest enemies of the Palestinian people, and who is who is really keeping the Palestinian people down? What's going on there, you know? Um, and th- the fact is that their biggest issues of the Palestinian people are Hezbollah, Hamas, Fatah, Mahmoud um, Abbas. Um, you know, everyone who's trying to turn the those people into political pawns in order to defeat the Israelis, lying to them and saying no, 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 don't worry, one day you know, you'll know, you be going back to that house that your great-grandfather had um, back in what is now you know, a city of 300,000 people on the other side of the country, um, which used to be swampland. But you don't worry, you're gonna go back to that. And they're lying to their people, they've been keeping them in refugee camps for generations, which is unheard of in human history. Um, and that is, I think, number one, You have to push that idea that the Israeli people and the Israeli government are not the enemies of the Palestinian people. Uh, I think it's Dennis Prager says this all the time. If uh, the Israelis put down their guns tomorrow, there would be no Israel tomorrow. And if the Palestinians put down their guns tomorrow, there would be peace in the area. I think Israelis just want peace. And I think you got to really make sure that members of Congress understand that. If
1: I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Golda Meir coined kind of that idea. Was it? And uh yeah, I well, think gold,
0: well gold in well ear said uh you know they oh there will never be uh peace as long as they hate their child they hate us more than they love their children. That's right. That's yeah, her. So That's yeah. is. Hey, you're right. Yeah.
1: I'm trying to remember who coined that phrase. I don't think it was Dennis Prager. I don't think it was Dennis Prager, but he could parrot it. It's totally all right. It's totally copyable. Well, if I'm I wrong, if I'm wrong, my apologies
0: to Dennis Prager. Yeah, I'm sure he listens to this podcast. That's
1: right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> listen to this episode.
1: So somebody wants somebody listen to this episode, or somebody's not listening to this episode. Who wants to get involved
0: with Norpack? What What are the steps? Well, it's very easy. Actually, you go to norpack.net, you sign up. Um, you basically uh, you go to norpack.net, you sign up. You tell them you you go to the mission to Washington is the big thing. This is, you know, I think. 99% of the people who are volunteer for NORPAC volunteer on one day a year. And it's all volunteers, everything. I think, I don't even know how many paid employees they have, not too many. Um, and, but it's all volunteers that people put in their time and these are regular people with jobs and they take time out of their um, lives to do it. So uh, what you do is you go to norpack.net, you sign up right now uh, until March 15th, they have their early bird pricing. The pricing covers the cost of transportation, um, down, you know, you gotta take a, a bus. It costs, you have know, to do food. Um, once again, this is all volunteer stuff. So um, you sign up. You tell them, um, you know, where you're from, what neighbor you're a part of. I am like most mid-sized to large Jewish communities have a, a bus already going. So they'll um, they'll tell you where the bus is if you need to. I know that uh, you know in Long Island, some people drive out to West Hempstead and drive from like Belmore, America or something like that. Um, and they come and join our bus. So you take the bus down and, uh, you know, you'll meet up with a group leader, a group leader will tell you what to do. If you don't want to talk, by the way, you don't have to talk. You could just, just being there helps. Right. You don't, you do not have to talk to anyone. You could just sit there and just listen. And by the way, I think it's a great thing to do with parents and kids. Um, I think that a parent going with a teenager, I think the minimum age is, is 12 or 13, um, and until eighteen, you have to have, be with a parent. Mm-hmm. O- over eighteen, you can go by yourself. But um, it, I actually can't wait. I have a four-year-old, who's my oldest, and I have a, you know, and, and so I have three kids, four and younger. And I really can't wait to go with them to Norpac because I learned more about how government works on these days going to Washington than I did um, in school. And I don't know if that says more about me than, than <laughs> the school, but which is possible. But um, I think that's just hands-on. You know, you learn by doing. And uh, you want to know how a bill becomes a law? This is how a bill becomes a law. And uh, so you sign up, you uh, volunteer to go, um, you know, take a day off from from work, take a day out of your retirement, and take a day, like bond with your kids also. You know, you got teenagers, go with them. This is important stuff, you know, walk the walk.
1: Before we move on to some
0: other topics, anything else
1: do you think is important for us to know about NORPAC?
0: You know what, I would would like to add that um, a lot of people come up to me and say, you know what can I do? What is it that uh, that I, I can help or do anything? And uh, this is a really good way to do it. I mean, it is a day out of work. It is a long day. It is a tiring day. You will feel amazing at the end of it. And I just want to tell everyone who is even thinking about doing this kind of thing, you know, there's a million reasons not to do something. Oh, I got work. I got my kids. I got you know. Um, all these responsibilities and everything like that. Yes, that's all true. None of that's going away. It'll be there on the day after NORPAC. It'll be there the day before NORPAC. Take a day, get do something, you'll feel amazing, and you'll be doing good. Good. All right. So let's move on to some other things. Now, I'm going to preface
1: this by saying that this second half of the interview, <laughs> this is not a reflection of NORPAC. No, it's not. This is a separate part. And... Uh, Whatever is said from this point on is is Moshe Hill talking? Yes, on behalf of Moshe Hill.
0: I'm have a, not on behalf of North Back. is a bipartisan organization that works with every member of Congress. Moshe Hill is a is a partisan hack. No, <laughs> <laughs> accurate. Um, no, I am a I am a conservative. Um, I am biased towards the right side of the political aisle. And uh, my, I do not let my opinion uh, be hidden. All right. So on that note, okay.
1: anybody who wants could probably find your articles online. You've written for The Clean Jewish Link, The New Jersey Jewish Link. You've written for uh, Daily Wire. You have your own blog. You're active on social media. Mm-hmm. They could find what you, what you talk about. Yes. And I've, I've read a lot of what you say. We write for the same paper. Yes, we do. And thank you for that connection. But you're yeah, welcome. Uh, I, I do like to say that I kind of made Moshe Hill.
0: You do like to say it. I do like to say
1: it. I don't know if it's accurate, but I like to say it.
0: Uh, (laughs) I guess on the Mount Rushmore of people who made me, you may get second tier. All right. I'll take that. Uh, The top
1: eight. There you go.
0: Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: I don't want to focus on a lot of the things that you write about because Uh people could find those things. I want to focus on some of the political things that go on a little bit more behind the scenes that focus more specifically on the Jewish community. Okay. All right, so we just spoke about NORPAC for a while. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about some more domestic things. Sure. All right, let's start with this. A few weeks ago on my show, I had on Assemblyman Daniel Rosenthal. Oh, yeah. All right, from the from, from the uh, district where actually our paper is is, is uh, based. Mm-hmm. And he brought up the point of you know, why it's important for Jews to register as Democrats. Yes. And they're voting in primaries. They're voting a lot, oftentimes in a lot of the districts that Jews live in. There's no Republican opposition mm-hmm. on the on the ballot. There's no Republic there there. If there is, there's no chance that the Republican's going to win. It's basically been decided that the D is going to win. So his point was basically,
0: as Nancy Pelosi said, a glass of water with a D next to his name would win in some of these districts. That's right, referring to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's right. district.
1: So his point is that if you want to have a say in the election that's going to be in your district, mm-hmm. register as a Democrat, and basically when you vote in the primary you're voting for who the representative
0: is yeah that the primary is more important than the general
1: election right i'd like you to make the case as to why somebody should not do that and, and register for what they believe if they believe that they're democrat register democrat but if they believe that they are at heart a republican register republican
0: absolutely i actually um hear really both sides of this Yeah. and i struggle with it i would never register as a democrat on principle um because i am a republican um and That's just something I wouldn't do it even to, you know, make sure that we keep someone um, who is virulently anti-Semitic or anti-Israel or socialist or anything like that um, out of um, Congress or in local state assembly or anything like that. I do think that it is an interesting tactic to take to say, okay, let's make sure that we at least by the general, we have two good options. The case that I would make to not do that is because I don't think real change could happen if you basically play that game. I think real change can happen if you're on the ground, if you're making the case to um, make real change. I th- I go to a lot of Queen's uh, Republican Club meetings because I try to interview uh, candidates um, on both sides of the aisle. I did an interview uh, with a couple of challengers to some uh, current members of Congress, and I meet with the people. There's a lot of energy in New York City, in Queens, on the Republican side. Um, is it enough? I don't know. Queens, there you have D plus 29 districts. I mean, that means they're blowing them out of the water. But you get a D plus 29 plus 29 district in 2020. Maybe by 2022, it's down to 20, D plus 20. Then maybe by 2024, it's D plus 10, and so on. I think that you got to make the change And, you know, that's what conservatives do. We don't make big change very quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time. And I think that if you register as a Republican or however you feel, but I'm just saying
1: if you're a conservative and you register as a Republican, if
0: you're a conservative and you register as a Republican, I think you're making a statement to the parties, to both parties, that they should pay attention to this district. I think that both parties get very complacent if they think that one district is either too red or too blue. Um, I think that people pay much more attention and I'm talking about party leaders I'm talking about, um, members, um, who are trying to do something for their communities. I think they get much more active when they know that their next election is on the line. Um, so if they see that it could go either way, they're going to make sure they do something for you. If they see that they're going to win no matter what, maybe they won't, maybe they'll just be like, okay, I'm not going to listen to this guy. I'm not going to get the lights changed. Um, you know, the streetlights change is because I'm not going to work hard for that because what's the difference, you know, I'm not going to make sure the road, road is paved because what's the difference? I'm going to win election anyway. But if your seat is up, they're going to get that road road right. paved. And that's a big deal. My argument
1: has always been a little bit different. Now I, I'm, I'm talking to you as a little bit of a hypocrite. I'm not registered for the party that I most affiliate with. Okay. But the argument that I would have always made was, there's always a question of why should I vote? Does my vote really matter? Yeah, and like, oh, come on! If I don't vote, is 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 that am I am I the swing vote? That's the same type of thing with with a registration. Am I the swing? Oh, if I register as the party that's in the minority and the in the in the far minority, is that going to matter? Mm-hmm. The answer is no. But if you say that and he says that and she says that and all these people say the same thing then there's not going to be a real change same thing yeah. with same thing with registration same thing with voting
0: yes absolutely it's so funny because i remember like joking around when i was younger like i said i didn't get into this until i was in my 20s late 20s and um you know when i was in high school and whatever and that we were st- first starting to like register and vote and do all this kind of things um i said like yeah, what's the big deal? Like, if I don't vote, and like, well, if you say that, and you say, that and you say, that, I'm like, well, no one else is saying that. I'm just saying that, you know. Like, <laughs> I'm not speaking for anyone else. But it is true. I think there is a certain aspect of that. There is a certain complacency that people have, you know. Um, we talk all the time about, you know, Donald Trump won the electoral college but lost the popular vote because, and I talk about this a lot of times, that you know, there's probably he lost by what three million votes. Yeah. Little you, bit, you, little, think, little three months. you think in between New York and California and New Jersey and all these big uh huge blue states, um, there aren't, you know, a number of people. I'm not gonna guess how many people, but how many people are just like, My vote doesn't matter, what's the difference? So I'm not gonna go vote, and they would have voted for him, and he probably would have lost the state anyway. I'm not saying he would have won the state, but he may have gotten close to the popular vote, he may have even won the popular vote and now, there's a lot of states going around saying, well, we're just going to um, give our electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote. And I joked around today, um, if you look at those states, they're all blue states, every one of them. So that means there's a chance that Donald Trump wins 50 states if he wins the popular vote. Right. So, you know, if you're in New York, I think he lost by one and a half million in New York, or two, two million, a wide margin, 100%. Right. Maybe he would have lost by a million and then, and then, but you the could say the same thing in yeah, the, in the, in, the in the
1: very red states, in, in Texas and Mississippi and Louisiana, like the very the, yeah. the more red states. You could say the same thing that the, the voter turnout for the blue side isn't as strong. But I, I think I think that if you change the electoral college, it changes the complete, it completely changes the dynamic.
0: Of oh, it, it completely destroys. It it destroys the fabric of the country. The fabric of the country is is the United States of America. I mean, every single state has a say, and if you take away the electoral college, you basically take away. 43 states st- say in what this is going on, you know, and I think that that's would really ha- tragically harm the United States.
1: All right. So I want to get your take on the orthodox perspective on conservatism versus libertarianism. Okay. All right. So my big thing that I've always been working on, and I don't know if you have an opinion on this. I'm just going to ask you. Okay. All right. The concept of libertarianism is basically leave me alone. If I do something, if I do something to harm somebody else, yeah. Mm-hmm. But other than that, leave me alone. Conservatism is a
0: little different. Yes. Um. So they align on a lot of issues, but there's certain things that uh, they they do differ. Yeah. So would an Orthodox Jew
1: rather line up with libertarianism, where I can practice my religion and nobody could make any laws at all that would infringe upon that, versus conservatism, where you're fighting for a little bit of a change, but there is that that aspect of well if they decide that your religion is now against the norms is that something that we should be worried about
0: well i would disagree with your premise um right there because i don't think conservatism would um does that i don't think that conservatism because conservatism really is talking about the the initial foundation of the united states it's talking about the ideology of the united states And freedom of religion is sacrosanct in the United States, Um, thank God. Um, And I think that uh, that's not where conservatives and libertarians differ. Well, let me me clarify what I was saying. All right? So, a
1: religion that exists right now Mm -hmm. that uses... I'll give you an extreme example. Uses human sacrifice. Okay. Okay? The American government would not allow that. No. Because...
0: I don't think libertarians of, would fight for that either.
1: Okay, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. I'm, I'm giving you an extreme example. Well, it's okay? murder. I think right. even so, libertarians
0: think murder is I, wrong. I, I'm
1: agreeing with you. Let me, okay. let me <laughs> give you the, the example. Okay? Yeah. So we would all say that, that even though we have this freedom of religion, but but human sacrifice goes too far to that so that this would not fall under freedom of religion because it harms other people. Sure. All All right. Let's say it comes out long the way down the road that something like brismila circumcision, that is actually harmful to the baby, mm-hmm. uh, and you you can't do it. Medicine comes out and says, you're not allowed to do it. Okay? Okay. All right. According to the conservative theory then mm-hmm. on that, they might be more likely to back a ban on something like that,
0: whereas a libertarianism might not. Um, I don't really see that. I, I hear what you're saying. I think that because that's more of a social issue than a political issue. I think where in terms of social issues, I think many conservatives line up much closer to libertarians. Um, but you're saying like the some conservatives that, you know are against uh, certain social issues that uh, libertarians are just having cared about you know, certain drug issues and marriage issues and that kind of stuff. But I don't see that's where the divergence is. Okay, so where where do you see those. the divergence? I see the divergence in, um, basically, I would say that uh, the most extreme libertarians are so um, leave me alone that they, you know, don't care about, like, abortion, for example. Like, they, they're like, everyone's got a right to Jews. What's the difference? You know, that kind of thing. Whereas um, conservatives, all, many conservatives, um, I wouldn't say all conservatives, cause there are some conservatives who, who fall under this, um, umbrella as well. But many conservatives are pro-life, um, because they view it from the, ver- from the viewpoint of, um, the baby. You know, they don't look at it from the viewpoint of the woman, they view from the viewpoint of the baby and the baby is a person. So, you know, um, you can't kill it. Um, whereas libertarians, you know, really, um, would say, what's the difference? Um, no, they wouldn't be that, cold but they, <laughs> um, they they would basically say like you know it's it's her thing she has the right to to what she wants kind
1: of my body my choice type of
0: thing. yeah that kind of thing you know and that's that's basically i don't want the government anywhere right. libertarians are also much more uh, isolationist um in, in foreign in general, policy in foreign policy they say you know what we, we shouldn't be involved in any foreign wars or that kind of thing
1: so they'd be less likely to have the u.s give money to israel Yes. I think actually Rand Paul was... Rand Paul only... was the
0: only Republican who did not vote for Marco Rubio's Bill S-1, which was the first bill that the 116th Cong- uh, Senate um, brought up um, that passed 77 to 23. Um, Rand Paul was the only Republican that voted against it because it included aid to Israel. He is... Uh, but historically, he's, he's voted against he's aid always everybody. He always votes against aid. It's So I didn't view him as... As doing something anti-Semitic because he has a long track record of voting against any aid anywhere. Eight, anywhere. Yeah. Um, that's just the way he is. Twenty-two Democrats or twenty-one Democrats and one independent, Bernie Sanders, uh, voted against it as well because it contained a portion uh, to combat BDS. Um, so they and uh, so they didn't vote for that bill as well. It still passed twenty seventy-seven twenty-three, and ha- it has not been brought up for a vote in the House, which is something that I know has been brought up in. NORPAC last year and will probably be brought up again this year because it still hasn't been brought up for a vote in the House. That is uh, something that libertarians really um, are more isolationist than conservatives. I think conservatives realize that um, you know, if you don't do something about foreign enemies now, you're going to have a 9-11, you're going to have a Pearl Harbor, um, whereas libertarians are like, no, don't bother them, they won't bother us, and we'll be all right. Kind of a Monroe Doctrine type of a thing. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Um,
1: more close to home mm-hmm. now time of recording has been about a month and a half since the last major anti-Semitic attack mm-hmm. um, here it seems like it's been a lot longer than it has it's only been yeah. about six weeks at the time of recording Less
0: because we've already had World War 3 and that ended and <laughs> Tr- Trump's been impeached and that ended and it, it, there's been a lot of news right. in, in the last month it's been a crazy 2020 I want, so I wanted
1: far to, I wanted to get your opinion on kind of the political football that has become the Jewish community. What I've noticed is that when something happens in our community, politicians like to use us as a political football to bash their, their opposition. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's really all that beneficial to us it just seems
0: i don't think it's unique to the jewish community either i think okay. that if something happens in the black community that's big and it makes national news everyone's gonna bash each other if something happens with guns everyone's gonna bash each other i think that the jewish community is is one of many political footballs that likes to be used um which is unfortunate for literally everybody but that's that's the name of the game in that sense um i don't like it when it happens to the jewish community i don't think that it's appropriate for um you know, the mayor of New York City or the governor of New York State to blame Washington, D.C., the president on something that's happening in their own city. At the same Um, time, I don't
1: think it's right for the president to be blaming the governor of New York State or the mayor of New York City. These aren't the people that are are carrying out these acts. Yes, exactly. It's happening under their watch, but it's also happening... It's happening under all of these people's watches.
0: Yes. And I think that most policies need to... You need to start local and then work your way outwards. I would not say that people getting randomly punched in the street uh, of Brooklyn is a federal issue. I would say it's a New York issue. I think that there's an issue with um, disrespecting police officers. I think there's an issue with, um, you know, the new bail reform that's coming out. I think that they're too um, easy on criminals. And I think that people know it. I think that there's too much willingness to disrespect uh, cops. I think that people know it. And, you know, that's just going to lead, go down a dark path. I think that one of the most ridiculous things i ever read on twitter at least which is a place that's a, a zest pool of ridiculous things um is after the jersey city shooting bill de blasio wrote a tweet that basically said something like um anti-semitism has come to our doorstep yeah and i'm like uh hey buddy you're the mayor of new york city and close are getting punched in the face randomly on your street for the past 18 months um so like what it's not not even i honestly don't think that's the
1: most egregious thing that he said that's the most that's the most blind thing that he said not realizing that this has been a problem
0: for years the problem in new york city preceded him i would not give him so much credit to not know that he didn't know that i think that oh no I yeah i would say that he was fully aware of the problem he just saw that he was able to make a point and so to basically he he just Willingly ignored the problem instead of. I mean, he also said that it
1: was that anti-Semitism is is a strictly right-wing. Yes. Yeah. Issue.
0: And the New York Times said that they they don't report on anti-Semitism because they cannot ascribe it to a right-wing group. I mean, if it's not right-wing, it doesn't exist, and that I think is ridiculous. I think we should we should condemn it if it's on the right. We should condemn it if it's on the left. We should condemn it if it's in the center. I think we should condemn it if it's above, below, anywhere. Yeah. It's also weird that the place in America where the most anti-Semitic
1: attacks happen. Is in New York City. That's well, the place with the most Jews also. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is true. But it's also the place that Hillary Clinton won by, uh, I think, it was eighty-nine, eleven. So it's not like this is a hotbed of right-wing activity. Right. Yeah. 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 Let me shift a little bit. You mentioned Twitter for a second, but I know you have a big presence online. Yeah. So I know that you argue online with a lot of people. Some of you know, some of you don't. Mm-hmm. I want to focus on the ones that you know, and I think there's more of a thing for most of our listeners. Mm-hmm. If you have political disagreements with somebody online, how can you maintain a nice relationship with them face to face when you see them?
0: Well, the way I do it is um, you just have to go with... You, you, social media isn't real life. Things you sometimes say or do on social media is something you wouldn't say to the person's face, but you have to be careful on social media as well. You know, Try not to get too personal. Um, You have a lot of courage when you're not in front of someone's face. Try to imagine yourself in front of that person's face the next day, you know, when you're going to davening in the morning, you got to be careful with that. And so you, it's important to um, speak your mind. I'm not going to say, I would never say don't speak your mind, but don't get personal, you know, don't use personal information that you have on someone else to argue with them. Don't say, oh, you believe this, but what about what you do uh, when we went to your house last week, you know, like, or whatever it is. That's just a recipe for disaster. Don't ruin your personal relationships because of silly idiots and, you know, thousands of miles away who are doing whatever they want to do. You definitely shouldn't do that. Um, I also think that it's important when you do see these people, and it does get awkward, you know, sometimes. But you gotta like laugh it off. And you gotta like understand that Twitter isn't real life, Facebook isn't real life. Um, and it's try as best as you can to not let these things ruin your relationships.
1: If someone feels passionate about issues that maybe we discussed today, maybe that they disagree with you on, whatever, if somebody feels passionate, what are some practical things that they can do?
0: Um, well, there's a lot you can do. Um... Obviously, you you join NORPAC. <laughs> you can yes exactly you can join norpac um every single town has local political clubs that you can join um be a democrat republican um you can join that there everyone has monthly meetings if you want to do that honestly go out and vote you know like so many people don't vote take a friend with you take a take a spouse with you um if you got kids over 18 take a kid with you um go vote uh you know, don't be afraid to to talk about this. I talk a lot about, I, I, I speak to a lot of people um, in shul around town and I say, why don't you like do more? Why aren't we doing more? And they're like, well, we don't want to, you know, bring so much attention to the Jewish community. We got a lot of issues already. You know, we already got to pay for guards outside of, our, uh, outside of our shul because of somebody um, in California or somebody in Pittsburgh. You know, I don't want to give anyone an excuse to come at me. I don't want to... I, I don't think we should live in fear. I don't think people should should silence themselves because they're afraid of repercussions. I think that you really should, you know, be strong about this. I think that a good example of this is uh, right now we have the World Zionist Congress. Um, right. Yeah, I didn't even talk about that. Um, but you know, we can talk, have a whole another podcast about that. Exactly. I yeah.
1: Actually, plan on it. Okay. With
0: me? <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> good. More, there are more qualified people than me. Um. Well, maybe that's not true. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course that's true. Um, but the, But uh, you know, that's a big thing as well. like the World Zionist Congress. you, you, can, you can do some research on that. you vote. I, I, I've said this to, to a couple of I speak sometimes to high schools. I actually spoke to high school recently. And what I said was um, I didn't go to school to college as a journalism major or take advanced writing courses. I wasn't an English major like some people. Who are those people that become English majors? um, I didn't take public speaking courses or anything like that. But I learned to write by reading. I learned to speak by listening. And you could do the same thing. I'm not saying you got to, you know, write for your local newspaper or, um, you know, go to uh, every meeting. But do just something, you know. Um, There's teach. um, uh, New York State is or wherever you're listening. There's probably a teach program um in that you know you can volunteer for that that they're always looking for people um you can always uh do norpac of course you should definitely do norpac you should vote in the local elections and not yet yeah, not just when you know the president's on the ballot you got local the things that that are local that affects you more than who the president the is. more
1: local the election the more it's going to affect
0: you absolutely i mean your road is not going to get paved if uh, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump are in the White House. It does, that's not going to fix the pothole outside your house. It's not. And by the way, the pothole outside your house is a lot of times more important than uh, a lot more things in, in the country. And it's it's a harsh reality that, you know, but you got to get to work, you know, and if that pothole knocks out your transmission, you're really having a problem. So you got to make sure that uh, you vote in these local elections and you stay active.
1: So we're running out of a little bit out of time. I'm going to give you a couple of rapid fire questions. All right. All right. I'm actually going to flip a little, a couple of them on you. Hold All wait. right.
0: Let me answer before you ask. Um, my favorite color is blue. My favorite food is what? No? no that's Keep not what going. Okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to stop you. What is your favorite food? I do like chicken. Uh, okay. I've, I've heard. Okay. Here we go.
1: <laughs> I'm going flip, to flip a couple of things on you. Okay. Least dangerous Democrat still in the election for America's
0: future and for Israel's future? Um. It, I'm, it's a toss-up between Mike Bloomberg and Amy Klobuchar.
1: All right. Hopefully, by the time this airs, they will still be in the race. It's, it's a good question. <laughs> All right. So you're a conservative. Mm-hmm. Best place for conservatives to hear the liberal opposing point of view. Ooh, it depends how deep you want to get in.
0: Let's give me give me a, uh, hey, a mainstream New York Times, mainstream media, and then maybe a podcast. New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you know, CNN. Those are straight up liberal points of views. Um, you know, I like, uh, the press box is a good podcast. Um, you know, I think you'd, uh, pod save America. I yeah, I know you listen to them. I, I can't listen to them <laughs> Um, I like the press box. That's a good one. All
1: right. Uh, last one, not going to be flipping on this one, but, um, this actually comes from a mutual friend of ours and friend of the show, uh, Simi Cohn. <laughs> Don Zimmer? Don Zimmer. Oh my gosh. The Don Zimmer. He asks, what are some specific policies you'd like to see? Or actions that we local Jews can take to fight or prevent anti Semitic attacks?
0: Um, cops, cops, cops. I mean, you got to help the police. You got to support the police. Um, I think that that is the number one thing you got to do because they are, they put themselves on the front line um, to make sure that you are safe. Um, another thing is guns. You got to be able to protect yourself. Um, you second amendment rights are incredibly important. The second amendment is practically non-existent in the state of New York, um, especially in the city of New York. I actually just heard a a talk last night about a guy who is a a NRA um, instructor and a a second amendment, uh, activist and he applied to get um, a carry license in um, New York, in New York city. It took him a year um he had to go to like one police plaza a bunch of times he had to provide affidavits he had to get fingerprinted he had to get background checked he had to provide he had no criminal history except for one speeding ticket he had to provide like his entire dmv record it's just a crazy amount of time and money and expense and you know what it, you can't uh protect yourself that way um, if there's going to be a school shooting, it's illegal for anyone in the, for any teacher to have a gun. I think that's legislation that passed last year in, in New York State um, that no teacher can have a gun. I don't think that it, it is responsible for a school to say, you know what, you were, and this isn't just for, for you know Jewish schools. I think this is for non-Jewish schools too. If you're trained, if you're responsible, if you're able to do it, and you keep the gun safe, obviously. Um I don't see there's any reason why teachers uh wouldn't be able to carry in case something happens. It's an unfortunate reality of the world that we live in. Um but I would say that that's something that's important. So um you know, keep people safe, cops and guns. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where can people find you Moshe Hill? Uh you can find me on Facebook at A Hill with a View. Um you can find me on my website ahillwithaview.com. Um you can find me on Twitter at the themohill. Um, you can find me, uh, on Instagram at Insta Hill with a view. Um, I'm seeing a pattern. There's a lot of, yes. My, so I go by a hill with a view, um, because I last name is Hill and I do have a view on things. So, ah, I've uh, I've noticed based on this conversation. Yes, indeed I do. Um, Facebook is really where I spend most of my time, even though I get made fun of by, uh, teenagers because <laughs> nobody's on Facebook <laughs> under the age of 30, I think. It's so probable so i'm gonna have to up my game um but yeah and, and what about your work your writing uh i oh you can find me at the uh, queen's jewish link i have a weekly column um i have uh submissions in jns.org jewish news syndicate the daily wire that's ben shapiro's website name drop um and <laughs> uh yeah daily wire uh jewish link of new jersey and, uh, you know, I think a lot of my stuff gets syndicated all around, especially the JNS stuff. Um, so I've been, I've found myself in random places. So, um, and one more time for Norpac. So, for Norpac, you can go to norpac.net to sign up. Please join us in the Mission to Washington 2020 on Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. The early bird rates right now are $150 for adults, $100 for students or young professionals under 30 years old. I just missed it out by a few years. And uh, <laughs> these are the special rates that um, are uh, expire on March 15th, Sunday, March 15th. And they go up by $50 after that. Uh, please sign up. It is well worth your time and effort. Um, and I look forward to seeing you there. Moshe Hill, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much.
1: My thanks to Moshe Hill for joining me today. I just want to riff off of something Moshe said that didn't quite fit in during the conversation. As you heard, he didn't break into politics until his late 20s. I didn't start a podcast until my early 30s. It's never too late to start a passion project, or even to change careers if that's your thing. The more you're consistent with it, and the more time and energy you put in, the more likely you are to succeed. As I've mentioned before, thank you to all those who keep listening week after week, those who share this show with others, and those who have left a review of the show. I'm astonished how this podcast has grown each week, and I just want to reiterate my appreciation to all of you. If you plan on going to the NORPAC mission to Washington this year, I wish much Hatslochah to you. And to everyone, as always, Kol
0: The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Soroli Paikas. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.